Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Good morning, Miss Braun. Good morning. Miss Braun, are you feeling all right? Whatever do you mean, Welly? <clears throat> you seem to be addressing me in a monotone manner. What? Oh, Wellington. I'm sorry. It's just this case here. Another one with many a detail and what seems to be a recording. An audio addendum? Yes. Well, let me pop it into the engine and see what it has to say. A quick note about the reading. For reasons various and not particularly interesting, I've chosen to record this as a straight reading rather than as an audio drama or a voice actor collaboration. Now, the primary character, Bruce Campbell, is an Australian. Here is my best attempt at an Australian accent. Crikey, mate! Crikey! I sure love men at work! Right. So I've read uh, all of Bruce Campbell's dialogue here in my own American speech pattern. I hope the Australians and purists will forgive me. Welly? Yes, Miss Brom? I'm scared. Worry not. Fortes, fortuna, aduvat, yes? So let us press on. Welly? You can read the case file while still holding my hand. No need to fret. Night's Plutonian Shore by Jack Mangan 1849, Fall Tastes of regret and comfort from the evening's brandy. City trees had already shrugged their leaves to the paving stones. The autumn discards crunched and scattered beneath the tread of his shoes. The sickle moon seemed to shift, swinging low above Baltimore like a pendulum. The author walked alone in his reverie, entirely unaware of the one-eyed man following him. Lines of prose silently collided with drunken recollections in his mind, fictional characters walking through non-fiction memories, black cats mingling ominously with long-lost women of his past. He paused with a sigh and leaned heavily against a gas lamp. Many cares and toils oppressed, weary, I must lay me on a couch to rest, he muttered, rubbing the bridge of his nose. Eager now for the slumber awaiting in his room, he hunched into his collars against the October chill and strode on. He was startled by a hand on his shoulder. He spun round as fast as he dared, stared up into a visage of menace, a gaunt, haggard grin under stovepipe, too young a face for the scars and the eye patch that he wore. The tall stranger stood unmoving, like a weathered portrait in flesh and velvet, faded colors and cracked dignity, his smile a brushstroke of relief upon a canvas of sorrow. 
Mortal dread, of which the author had written countless times, surged now within his own breast, waking life imitating his prose nightmares. He staggered backward, searching for voice, but finding only a liquor-dry throat. The tall man's smile deepened as he stood in place, watching the author's clumsy retreat. He spoke softly, his voice coarse yet polished, like the street's cobblestones. Nameless here forevermore. He flipped the patch over his brow, freeing the thing in his right eye socket. Eighteen eighty nine, spring. The mission in the States didn't go quite as agents Brandon Hill and Bruce Campbell had planned. They'd skimmed the briefing documents, yeah, 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 through warnings about the eye weapon Michael Sharnasser had been using for decades, codenamed the Goldbug. The ministry had received permission from President Harrison himself. They'd zeppelin from London to Philly to the Arizona Tableau, infiltrated the Sharnasser ranch compound, stealthily thumped their way through the property guards, only to have the target confrontation go... Something like this. Aren't you cockneys a little outside of your jurisdiction? The one-eyed geezer stood alone inside his stables, showing his hands and a slight smile before the agent's dozen or pistols. Two of his henchmen lay slumped in the hay at their feet. A trio of quarter horses watched dispassionately from their stalls. The single lantern's light reflected in their eyes. We're not exactly English, Hill said. He's Australian and I'm Canadian. A dingo and a chinook. Queen Vic thinks so little of me? The old man clicked his tongue, straightening his black velvet collar. He walked a few labored steps and slowly lowered himself to a wooden stool, then produced a J-shaped pipe. The twist of smoke from its bowl matched the gray in his whiskers. He puffed absently, leveling his cyclops stare at Campbell. What exactly is the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences' interest in me, Agent Oz? Bruce slapped the pipe from Sharnasser's mouth. It skipped and sprayed tobacco sparks on the dirt floor. It's Campbell, Yank. The Ministry doesn't give a damn about you, particularly, but we know all about your insect artifact. You'll either put the bloody thing in me hand right now, or accompany us to London to tell our archivist all about it. Trust me, that bloke is more boring than any prison cell. You have no idea about my burden, Agent Campbell, Yank. Its poisons have swum for decades in the fathoms of my blood. They bathe even now in the lakes of my mind and soul. My sleep is disturbed with pains. My waking hours are three-quarters ache and weakness, one part gratefully numb sighs. Oh, my heart is breaking. Campbell rolled his eyes. Hill chuckled. Don't waste tears on my account, gentlemen. I'm a proud patriarch over six children and nineteen grandchildren. I've lived a privileged, burdened, blessed, cursed, good, evil life. Ghosts of deeds terrible and foul haunt my reckoning. My vitality is a half-century compromised. Yet here, pestilent and scant months from my casket, I am as content and accomplished as any man I know. And by Judas, 
before the devil locks me in irons, my final mortal satisfaction shall be the fall of the house of Usher. A horse snickered into the silence. Well, I'm good, said Hill, exchanging a glance with Campbell. If you cooperate and help the ministry, then perhaps you won't need to spend your remaining days in a London jail. I have no intention of assisting either the British or the American espionage agencies, Sharnisher said, smiling. Though the separation will surely kill me, I head east soon to bestow this curse upon my usher cousins, a gift they'll gratefully receive, the same token which you seek, and I mercifully deny. The old man flipped his eye patch upward. The black, thumb-sized beetle emerged at once from the socket, antenna twitching. The gold skull marking on its shell was visible for just a moment as his tarsi stepped out onto Sharnasur's cheek. Except for this small taste. The very air seemed to crack and blister like paint upon an old canvas. Hill and Campbell collapsed instantly into each other without pain or cry, fell stiffly to the hard earth floor. Paralyzed but able to see and hear, the agent stared upward into the lantern-lit ceiling. Neither could release the horror that rose like bile. Their screams and panic reverberated silently, trapped internal. Sharnasur loomed over, his eyepatch seal in place again. He barked a summons. Others soon crowded around him, a constellation of faces staring down into the frozen gazes of the ministry agents. Five henchmen. Mixtures of derision and disdain in the faces of all, save one. The mustached gent in the bad stovepipe had something more behind his glare. Agent Bruce Campbell had been carried inside to some parlor, near enough a kitchen for onion and sweet potato smells to taunt him in paralysis. He had no idea if they'd brought Hill or left him in the stable, found he was only slightly more worried for himself than the Canadian. I still intend to board the Usher train when it comes through Flagstaff tomorrow. It was Sharnasur's weary voice. Wait until I'm gone, then confine this one to the barn and administer the antidote thrice daily. Don't kill the poor fellow by neglect or intent. There are enough good men's deaths on my tab. I'm having the Canadian brought with me, however, just to be sure. Exeunt all, save Campbell. Left alone, a comely nurse had appeared with an unpleasant-looking brass tank and boiler at his couch side, fitted him with a delicate, discreet tube beneath his blanket. He felt all that she did, wished for one significant change to the circumstances, only one. She then slid his eyelids shut, interring the premature burial within the tomb of his thoughts. No usher cell could have equaled the dark isolation of his own mind. It might have been hours or days... It might have been decades motionless on that couch. He could do naught but listen. The excruciating clock ticks were broken twice only by an attendant fussing with his machine. Otherwise, his only company were the cooking scents and the audio blobs of footfall and voices in other rooms. Waking and dreaming thoughts were as alike as brothers. After wearing thin the rage, the dread, and the mute requests to any listening god, he began to accept the possibility that his captors might not kill him outright. From this wobbly reassurance, he exhumed the most wretched mental state of all, self-reflection. His children and sometimes beloved wife, his perils and victories and defeats for the ministry, his women, his women, his women, and his women, his strict old mum and pap, Restum, his favorite tweed vest, 
The kinetoscope frames of his life flickered across his introspection. If his eyes would have allowed, he might even have wept. He awoke to a sudden painful jab in his neck, followed by the burn of humors flushing his veins. Rough fingers drew back his eyelid curtains. The mustache henchman's face was uncomfortably close, eyes darting about, resting only fleetingly on Campbell. His hushed accent was more Pennsylvania than Arizona. I'm a friend. I've just injected a megadose of the antidote. You should either recover within a few hours or die slowly in agony. We'll see. In the meantime, the door opened somewhere in the parlor. A man's voice said, Zachary, what in tarnation? The self-declared friend stood upright. He fit a pair of crackling, insulated Tesla knucks onto his fingers and stepped out of frame. Campbell could only stare at the ceiling and listen to the clatter of the fisticuffs. Something ceramic broke. Something heavy like furniture thumped the floor hard. Zachary's face reappeared. The medicine sting had wound its way to Campbell's extremities now, had begun to work on his locked vision, causing the American's face to distort frightfully before him. The parlor ceiling roiled like a warring thunderhead, then gave way to a starless night sky. He wondered if the yank had reclosed his eyelids. A strong grip had Campbell's armpits, and his last conscious awareness was of being hauled from the room. He didn't die. He awoke some indeterminate amount of time later, bouncing violently in a wooden chair, the scrape of a gritty cold wind upon his face. The near and distant cracks of gunfire snapped his mind to high alert. Leather buckles strapped him into a high-backed seat inside a covered wagon, jostling at dangerous speeds across some treacherously bumpy terrain. His vision was once again clear in the pre-dawn half-light. The wagon's interior looked nothing like he'd have expected it. It bustled with precise mechanical chaos like the inside of a sophisticated clock. Webs of cables and ropes occupied the headspace, all fastened into a rigging as complex as that of any sailing ship. A vented boiler perched behind his armchair, its brass skin pocked with switches, cables, tubes, pipes, hoses, dials, bulbs, exhaust valves, switches, levers, and interlocked gears. The chairs on the boiler were all welded to plates in the floor, along with a series of strapped-down wooden crates. In spite of the wind from their speed, a fine, ashy grit dusted nearly every surface, now including the inside of Bruce's nostrils. Wires snaked the ribbed ceiling, leading through the open front arch, plugged into machine harnesses on the wagon's galloping horses. No man held the bench seat. The equine quartet charged forward, seemingly of their own accord. "'Who's driving this thing?' Campbell shouted, alone. Gunshots from outside the wagon continued to ring out. A thumbnail-sized hole appeared in the billowing fabric wall to his right. Ah, welcome back from Nevermore, Agent Campbell. I am. The mustached yank said from somewhere behind him. He stepped up to shake Campbell's hand. This was a rather complicated maneuver, since his hands were gloved with leather ringlets on each of his fingers. Campbell arched a brow. Rawhide shoelaces dangled from the man's apparatus, feeding into the tent's internal workings. He looked more like a deranged puppeteer than an adventurer. The name Zachary Amboy. Awesome. Awesome? Awesome. OSM. I'm from the Office of Supernatural and Metaphysical, a division of the U.S. Marshals. The agent's face alit as blue sparks began to crawl a nearby electrical sphere. He slipped deftly through the cables and buckled himself to the chair next to Campbell, 
as if they were a pair of deranged bedlam patients. Don't touch anything. Who's out there chasing us? A bullum carom off a of brass. And shooting at us. Perhaps I could be informed as to what the bloody hell's going on, since this is a ministry endeavor, after all. Queen Vic and everything. Where's Agent Hill? Well, for starters, I blew my deep cover as one of Sharnister's ranch hands to save your British hide and hightail us out of there. I'd stow this vehicle for just such an occasion. Agent Hill is either dead, alive, or somewhere between on an eastbound train with Michael Sharnister. Someone shouted, Aha! from close behind. Campbell turned to see an Indian in goggles and gray peacoat clamber aboard their wagon. Colt revolver drawn. A white-blue flash of lightning erupted from a wired box atop the boiler, engulfing the man, sending him shrieking and reeling from the back of the wagon. Amboy burst into slightly too exuberant laughter, watching the Indian fall. And how could I forget? A handful of thugs from the ranch are in close pursuit across the prairie. You're off your bloomin' head, Campbell muttered. He looked over his shoulder, out of the wagon's rear arch, glimpsed at least twenty shadowy forms on horseback, all galloping hard and keeping close through the desert brush. Muzzle flashes lit around them like fireflies. That's a handful? An enemy strafing drew a constellation of hulls into the boiler. Oh, indeed. Darkness spilled over Amboy's mirth. He spun his chair on its central perch, inspecting the damage with a frown. He turned swiftly and pulled Campbell's left eyelid up with his thumb and forefinger. What the... Amboy examined his other eye. Do you feel all right, sir? Not with your bloody paws on my... But Amboy had already released him and ducked down to work at some ratchet beneath his seat. Before he could arch a brow, the Yank had swiveled Campbell's chair 180 degrees on its own central base, facing him directly backward toward the enemy. He stuck the oddest device yet into Campbell's hands, a palm-sized black brass-trimmed box with a rubbery stick protruding from its top. One red button occupied the upper left corner. One insulated wire meandered from the contraption. Amboy patted his shoulder and winked. You appear sufficiently recovered from the gold bug coma. See what you can do about our problem. He gingerly depressed the button as a demonstration. A blast of bullets erupted from somewhere on the wagon's tail, above the rear axle. Outstanding, whispered Campbell, his eyes widening. A few test bursts later, and all felt right again with the world. Campbell's frustrations drained slightly with each wagon rattling discharge. He quickly learned that the stick atop the box guided the aim of a rear-mounted Gatling gun. He hammered the trigger with vigor, lighting the skeletal trees and bushes in their wake with 30 caliber repeater rounds. A few pursuing targets were hit as well, but that hardly seemed to matter. He even laughed as he knocked a low tree branch into a surprised rider. The task consumed him for joyous minutes. His focus returned to the wagon's interior only when Amboy took the controller and swiveled him again locking his chair to face forward. Blimey, what a rush, man. That right there is why I got into this line of... His eyes suddenly widened, and he pointed ahead. Oi! Cliff! Noticing for the first time the cliffside horizon, alarmingly close, directly in the wagon's path. Amboy's hypnoelectrified horses barreled on, sprinting toward the end of the world, showing no signs of stopping. Zachary said nothing. His feet pumped twin bellows pedals on the floor. Campbell gripped the armrests, shouting vague curses, threats, and demands, all unheeded. His arched brow aimed around at the wagon's interior surfaces, which had all begun to ripple emphatically, as if by its own private storm. The noise, wind, and boiler heat battered his senses. 
Amboy casually donned a pair of goggles, his eyes greatly magnified by the lenses. He grabbed another pair from a rack nearby and offered them to Campbell. And die looking that bloody ridiculous? Turn before it's too late! Suit yourself. Amboy began to gesture madly with his fingers and hands, as if pantomiming a pipe organist before invisible keyboards. And brace yourself. The side walls of the wagon flung open and upward, like untied sails in a storm, startling Campbell. The swiftest of their mounted pursuers were suddenly there in their peripherals, waving guns through the haze of dust. The wagon's canvas walls billowed out to hang in a vertical wingspan above the ground, swollen with air. The jagged canyonside ledge rushed to greet their suicidal dash. The suspended moment was long enough for Campbell to ponder his mortality. The horizontal walls then flapped mightily downward, and with a deafening whoop from his mad yank counterpart, the horses pulled up short. They staggered to a halt at the cliff's edge, but the wagon compartment did not. A quick sequence of loud metallic pops and the wooden box detached from its axles and harnesses, launching ahead, up into the air over the ravine. A baritone cord blew loudly from vented whistles on the boiler. Zero ground. Campbell rarely indulged in screams of terror. He saved them only for special occasions, such as this. The upturned canvas wings flapped with a tremendous groan of oiled cedar, shoving downward and upward off of massive air pockets. A quickening sequence of beats later, guided by Amboy's dexterity, and the cart was unquestionably, unsteadily, aloft. Treetops, brush, and earth were visible far, far below. The wagon's flittering ascent was an erratic sequence of sudden dips and upward jumps, as if the wagon were riding some furious airborne bull. They dropped altitude below the rim of the ledge they'd just jumped, where their horses, wagon wheels, and pursuers had all stopped. A few wayward potshots from the ushers later, and the two agents were flying free, with the canyon floor stretching out beneath them. Bloom in hell, Campbell muttered. Bruce Campbell had passengered countless airships before, had engaged in fisticuffs atop them a few times, swung on vines across hell's chasms, had even fought a heart-stealing priest once on a high-rope bridge. But the ornithopter's jerky flight proved too much. He leaned to the right and watched his gut's sparse contents splatter onto a treetop below. As Amboy steadied their flight, so did Campbell's stomach settle. He wore the silly goggles now, occasionally wiping bug smear from one of the lenses. The wind was relentless, almost unbearably cold. He wondered how much cream and comb work it would take when this was done to tame his wilded hair. The northern Arizona woods gave way to rocks and vast expanses of scrub, dirt, and dwindling snow on the ground. The landscape shifted into something like a madman's artifice of the pure Australian outback, where he recalled great sloping stretches of earth and scrub back home. This place took the same colors and stretched them to stone arches and other impossible rock formations. The telltale mountainside rooftops and girder structures of a mining community sprawled to their right. A squat 240 steam engine led a procession of hopper cars away on a northeasterly rail line. It's like home, but it ain't. The desert quiets all that's false, Amboy said, the wind scattering his syllables. Truth is that the earth is bleeding under man's scalpel. Out here, a man can hear her ragged breaths, can feel the weak vibrations of her heart, even at this altitude. Are all Yanks this mad? 
Campbell asked, shouting over the wind. He gestured to the cabled wings. Is this how all Americans get around, Amboy? No, this is a prototype wagon thopter that I built for the awesome. The American unfurled two leaflet-sized maps on his lap and traced his fingertips across them, digging out four different pocket watches from different suit pockets and consulting each, muttering to himself. He absently flicked his cabled knuckles. The ornithopter responded to each gesture. Now if our target train departed Flagstaff at 523 and has been traveling east at an approximate rate of 65 miles per hour, then it should now be Christ in the outback. Campbell rubbed his brow, still trying not to look at the lurching ground below. Nobody told me there'd be arithmetic. We'll use my head for calculations. Yours will be solely for hitting things, Amboy said. And please, Agent Campbell, call me Zachary. Oh, I'm sure I can think of plenty of things to call you. The interior network of cables continued to pull slack and taut. The ornithopter's creaking wings continued to flap and keep them aloft. Another mining train crawled like a centipede through the valley below. Eighteen hopper cars following a well-tendered 242 steamer. The turbulent wind noise picked up with their ascent. Amboy fished a bizarre-looking, unwieldy contraption from a nearby crate. What appeared to be four brass horns welded together, with the bowls jutting out in different directions. He hung it on a hook between their heads and called, "'You're doing better than most first-time thopter flyers, Bruce!' It was still necessary for him to shout, but his voice echoed tinny and discernible through the bowels of his hanging brass cones. Without it, the altitude's winds would surely have made verbal communication impossible. Amboy spoke again. But then, you survived the gold bug and its antidote, so you're obviously made of durable stuff. If it had touched your skin, however... What? Well, then we'd have buried your box. Only Sharnasser seems to know the secret to its touch. What is that thing? How does he keep a bloody insect in his eye? It's not actually a living beetle. It's an extremely rare Amazonian gemstone with protrusions like mandibles. Its properties, some call them enchantments, cause an immediate neurological seizure in the observer, inciting hallucinations and paralysis, followed eventually by death. While I was in deep cover at Charnasur Ranch, I learned that his wine cellar also stocked milk of the Chilean field poppy, concealed with bricks behind a rack of Amontillado. This nectar is the only known counter. Dangerous in itself, it's what I injected into you, just before escaping us both from the ranch. And other than that, he's such a charming old fellow. Aye, I mean yes, sweet as the devil, Amboy scowled. He was an assassin for the House of Usher before the war, until his sudden move west during the gold rush. Some say that the Usher Illuminati feared his power and exiled him out there. The talk around his house hinted that he'd split with them for reasons entirely his own. Either way, the man has murdered dozens with his artifact. Either way, by Judas, I will personally send Sharnasur to hell before the hooks of old age drag him down. The Yank's madness flashed again across his face. I believe it was his recent failed attempt at Rudyard Kipling in San Francisco that got your ministry's attention. Campbell nodded. Perhaps he's of some use alive. He did tell my partner and me that he intended to bring down the ushers. They're apparently not even going to see it coming. Have you ever read any Poe, Agent Campbell? What? Edgar Allan Poe, the author. I don't read much, to be honest. But I knew that Sheila once in Belfast called herself the Raven. Saucy one she was. 
mad as they come. Now Amboy cocked an eyebrow. His voice came through the horns again. Poe died in 1849 after being found in a Baltimore gutter. The circumstances had always been shrouded in mystery, but the awesome recently intercepted some House of Usher dispatches indicating that Michael Sharnasser may have been involved in Edgar Allan Poe's murder 40 years ago. He may even be the killer. The words hung a moment. My journalist's father died two decades later, under very similar circumstances, after investigating Sharnasser's textile mill front in Santa Fe. I was a child. I've spent the last six months embedded on Michael's security staff, behaving each day as a government investigator, rather than a vengeful son. Sooty exhaust billowed skyward from the smokestack, like a black mane in the early morning wind. The engine was a glorious Baldwin 280 steam locomotive, leading its tender and three trailing passenger cars in a serpentine eastward twist through the rocky hillsides. A pair of men stood on the observation car's rear deck, pointing excitedly. Even with its speed on the rails, the ornithopter closed in fast from above and behind. The usher's own secret express, Amboy announced. He gestured to the charts and timetables in his lap. That train won't appear in any of these papers, which is fine, because I intend to blow it off the map. He then banked the craft's hard starboard, leaning south. His grin was made even more unsettling by his lens-magnified eyes. A low crag rose to block the train from their sight. Brandon is on that train, man. Amboy spared him a glance, pulled a brass gun controller from its slot beneath the seat, they cleared the hillside, closing in at an angle upon the train's rear car now, its right profile near enough to read the P-U-L-L-M-A-N stencils. Agent Hill is already on Knight's Plutonian shore. I have no idea what that even means, you lunatic. If... A thunderous gatling roar interrupted him. Bullets lashed out from a front-mounted gun on the flying wagon, strafing the two rearmost cars. Splintering wood, shattering glass, sparking steel. Campbell clenched teeth and fists, his patience depleted. He delivered a swift left jab to Amboy's jaw, spinning him in his seat, causing their entire craft to lurch violently in midair. The Gatling immediately silenced. The Earth orbited them for one vertiginous moment. Their wooden box dipped, bounced hard off the observation car's roof, jumping skyward again with a mighty flap of ornithopter wings, spinning away from the tracks. A few more turbulent seconds passed before Amboy re-steadied their flight. He touched his reddening chin and glared. Campbell cocked his right fist. I've got plenty more if they're needed. A few scattered shots popped against the engine and wind noises. If either had dared to look, they'd have seen the sharpshooters at the windows and deck of the express. Amboy leveled the craft out and drew a wide mid-air arc, lining them up to dive again at the train, this time coming in from its left side. The Baldwin's muscular wheels had not let up their eastbound charge, propelling along the rails with grace and machine symmetry. The trainmen's gunfire struck and caromed into their aircraft carapace, causing Campbell to swallow hard and reconsider his demands. Still, he kept his arm up like a pistol hammer. Still, Amboy dived the ornithopter in behind the train without counterfire, leveling to chase the rails eastward, closing again on the speeding cars. 
The thick wooden ties blurred like a high-speed kinetoscope picture a few feet beneath them. Gunpowder breaths from the guard's pistols on the train's rear deck. Campbell finally cracked and drew his dozener, shooting back at the gunman. The ornithopter flapped directly for the deck, accelerating much faster than the train. Its sentries held position a few seconds, then panicked and retreated to the car's interior. Campbell didn't dare exhale. Get your friend off the train before it reaches Eastwood Ravine, Amboy said, consulting two of his watches, the brass horn just barely conveying his quiet words. He retrieved a scrolled leather bundle from a crate and stuck it into Campbell's lap. Twenty-two minutes. That's as long as you get. My time to act is at hand. Amboy pulled up on his tethers. At the same time, he tugged a cord and a trapdoor suddenly swung open in the floor beneath Agent Campbell's chair. The flying machine aimed diagonally upward. His restraints let go, his seat's right angle straightened, and he slipped free, sliding directly ahead like a projectile onto the observation car's rear deck. Bruce managed to fit every curse word he'd ever known into that brief descent. He rolled to save his ankles from fracture, slamming hard into the carriage's interior wall. The ornithopter's bottom plank scraped the observation deck's awning, then loped upward and out of his sight. The sharpshooter gun soon ceased firing at it altogether. Campbell spotted the leather scroll where it had landed on the deck. He scooped it up and unrolled it, revealing a battery belt and a pair of Tesla knuckles. Okay, I hate him just a little bit less, Campbell said aloud, fastening the leather strap around his waist and vigorously winding its crank. The knuckles began to hum and tingle on his fingers. He pulled himself to his feet, just in time to greet the quartet of usher thugs re-emerging from inside the car. The fight scene lasted only a few seconds. Three slumped bodies, one more receding on the tracks behind them. He stared down the carriage door, the rhythmic clack of trucks on rails scoring his hesitancy. He silently chided himself, but still could not dismiss the recalled image of that ghastly beetle stepping out onto the old man's face. Sorry for the delay, Brandon, he whispered at last, shaking his head, drawing his pistol. Just a moment's foolishness. He let loose a battle cry and kicked open the door to the observation carriage, dozener and sparking fists ready to deliver hell. And... To be continued. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favorite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales in the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.